Welcome to Self-Discovery Radio, where the discovery of self is just a show away. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Their Story Matters with my guest all the way from the UK, Jason Bergman. I'm your host, Sarah Troy. We're going to be talking about the migrant voice in my series of migration and emigrants, because we are an emigrant world. Um, people have generally come from an, another country to another country. That's how this world was developed. And there's a lot of migration going on today, um, especially with the asylum seekers at the present moment, but just people seeking different opportunities, um, you know, exploring, becoming adventuresome. And it, what does it mean to a migrant when they go to a new country? They have difficulty maybe with the language, with the culture, the way things are done. How do they get settled in? How do they embrace this new lifestyle? Who is there to help them? Who's help there to help them get settled and integrate into their new home? Well, Jason is one of those people, and he formed this um, beautiful um, society called Migrant Voice, uh, which is promoting the voices of migrants and kind of helping them find that uh, that avenue of belonging and, uh, you know, kind of changing the way a migrant looks today. Um, you know, immigrants aren't people that are always on the run. Immigrants are people that want to contribute to the new country that they come to. And sometimes they just need a little aid in getting there. And they bring with it beautiful culture that when immersed with the culture of the country that they're in, can really kind of open up a better understanding and, you know, kind of some new, beautiful um, traditions that can be had. Um, so it's all a very good thing. So why is Jason in this? He's a Canadian now living in the UK. He's lived everywhere. So he's somebody who certainly knows about migration. He's lived in Malawi, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and the UK. And, you know, it's all about the equalities and the communications work with charities supporting refugees and migrants. And he helped establish the Migrant Voice and is the chair of the trustees. Why does this mean so much to him? So let's find out. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hi, Sarah. So why does it mean so much to you to have chosen this path to help people migrate and find their routing? Um, well, I suppose as a, um, as a child and as a, a student, um, I was always interested in, in other things, other places and other people. That's, I suppose, from my, my parents and 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 my grandparents um, growing up outside of Vancouver and in Abbotsford until um, uh, I was about 12 outside Abbotsford and then moving to Saskatchewan. It wasn't actually that mixed or, or that diverse um, uh, 30, 25, 30 years ago. Um, but I was interested and, and I remember um, choosing after high school, I thought I wanted a kind of what they call in the UK a gap year, which isn't quite so common in Canada, but um, is very common over here. And I, I was lucky and, and was selected to do a program called Canada World Youth, which, which took me to Newfoundland um, for four months and then to Malawi. And I lived together with uh, a Malawian counterpart in, in both of those places. And, and I guess that really made it much more real for me, but also that those people were not those people. Those people were us. They were very, everything was similar. We had the same interests and desires about our friends and family and, and what we wanted to do with our lives. And, and we had much more in common than, than I'd sort of thought might be different. Um, so I suppose that, that 
sort of put me on a path of what I studied in, in University of Saskatchewan and looking at uh, international development. Um, I was very lucky in that program also to be able to um, go to Nepal and, and to Sri Lanka. Um, but also I suppose the main thing in that experience was um, volunteering with something called World University Service of Canada, which did work around international development and promoting international and global issues on campuses across Canada, but at the same time, they're also their their big activity was sponsoring refugee students and and raising money and supporting those students that came over um, and being in Saskatoon with the winters and all of those kinds of things. It was uh, very interesting. Some of the refugees that we we sponsored who became some of my good friends, and just seeing what we again what we had in common, but also a desire to try to to do more and to help. And and because I I had been to. Asia as part of my, my studies, um, I ended up going back to Sri Lanka um, and working there for, for five years with, um, again, with World University Service, looking at vocational training and, and supporting young people um, out of the conflict or, um, or with, to give them other options. Um, and then also with the International Committee of the Red Cross, which was a, a bit more serious um, and a bit more um, uh, challenging, um, but was, was, was a good experience. And and from that, I guess I, I decided I wanted to do a, a master's and, and the UK programs were, were attractive, thinking that I would go abroad again. Um, but I kind of liked the UK. I liked the, the, um, the, the studies I did in, at the University of Manchester. And, um, but I was less sure about living in London and it was expensive and I was interested to work with, with charities, which didn't necessarily pay you very much or pay as much as other things in London just wasn't affordable. But... The UK had started a dispersal program. They'd started to disperse asylum seekers and refugees from London to the smaller cities and other cities around the UK, something that, the U- that Canada's done for, for a long time, I think, um, for maybe 30 or 40 years. But this was new to the UK, but also meant there were jobs that I was interested in that kept me doing something international in case I wanted to go abroad. Um, but I ended up staying here now um, almost 15, 16 years, mostly working with with programs that supported refugees, asylum seekers, and other migrants um, with organizations like Oxfam. Um, And I suppose it's just something that I got interested in when I was young and I've stayed interested in um, because also the the need remains and I get a little bit of hassle and flack from my family in Canada sometimes saying, well, (laughs) if you want to help people, you can do that over here, come home. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess this has sort of become home now. And I still do do come back and and do what I can, but I, I I think it's it's an interesting experience. I've been very privileged, but also it's it's something that I'm passionate about um, doing and, and know a little bit about, so I can I suppose help in different ways than if I was trying to find out something new or do something completely new. Well, you said the key word. You know, you're still passionate about it, and and if you've still got the passion, then you know that the journey is has not yet ended um, in that um, area. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that when we start treating people who are either refugees or immigrants as people, you know, as wonderful stories, uh, you know, of uh, contributions, um, you know, of a great history, um, we look at them differently. You know, I know right now that, you know, with all the asylum seekers coming over, every country is facing on how many they can take and about the integration and, and everything else. And, you know, I think one has to remember, first and foremost, um, they are people and they haven't left their country because they want to. They fear for their lives and they have to. And in many, many cases, you know, there's, there's people that seek a new life and there's people that have to run from death. 
and mm-hmm. uh, and it's two different mindsets, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I think it's um, like uh, my my family heritage on one side is is Mennonites and and they left um, Germany <coughs> first in the 1800s and in the late 1800s they are going to Russia and then from Russia they came to Canada and other places. So I suppose that's that's part of of my heritage, which has always been important, um, uh, especially on one side of the family and my grandma on the other side is a is is a war bride. Um, so you always have that experience, but I guess also having um, worked in in Asia and in, in Africa, you could see uh, when I was in Africa in 1990 in, in Malawi, they hosted in over a million Mozambicans, and they've been hosting them for 15 or 20 years. One of the poorest countries, I think it's in the mm-hmm. top 10 poorest countries in the world, was hosting one in 10 of their population was a Mozambican refugee. Similarly, today when we talk about Syrians, there's two million Syrians living in in Turkey. There's a million in Lebanon, a million in um, Jordan. One in four of the population of Lebanon is a is a refugee. Um, so when we we hear in the West and we start thinking about crisis, when numbers start to approach twenty or thirty or forty thousand, it really is is quite small. And we are we are among <coughs> the richest countries. And I think sometimes it's trying to share some of that information and experience so that people can realize it's possible, it can be done. Most people prefer to stay in a country next, uh, neighboring their country, because when things, the situation changes, they can go back, um, and that's what most people want to do. Um, but in some of these longer longer conflicts and things, then other solutions have to be found, and, and I think we, but by fate of birth, we would be in the same situation, and we would try to do best for our families and try to improve the situation and, and get into... Uh, into places where we can be safe um, for those who are refugees and from that background, but for other people, even like myself, I'm an economic migrant. I have a certain skill set, um, mm-hmm. and I, it, staying in the UK or, or other places where that is helpful, is is a choice that I'm privileged and able to make. Um, but uh, I think we we have to try to think more about how how we we want to be treated and how we want to live and, and apply that to others. Exactly. I mean, I've been an immigrant twice. I'm British-born, actually around the corner from you. I'm Lancashire lass, uh, so it's only a couple of hours away from Manchester. And oh. now I'm in BC, which was around the corner from Abbotsford. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm uh, you're probably 45 minutes away from that hometown. Uh, and I lived in South Africa uh, for a while. And I also lived in the States, though I didn't emigrate there. I just lived there for a little while. And, uh, you know, I'm English-speaking, so I'm very fortunate to have that language. Um, and I'm very adaptable. I love embracing new cultures. I actually married a Chinese gentleman and had three gorgeous ki- kids. Um, and, you know, I love immersing into different cultures. Um, I haven't lost my Britishness, um, but I've incorporated that in there and also kind of you know, absorbed the other cultures and things around. And I think when people are open to that, because... Um, whether you're a refugee or whether you're an immigrant when you go somewhere you have to not just take your little world with you and drop it in a new country you have to be willing to uh, kind of open up and blend and melt those cultures together because otherwise that segregation breeds animosity so how do you actually help people kind of understand you know feeling comfortable uh, but you know to immerse and to meld into a new culture um, well, I think that's one of the, I, I guess there's sort of two things there. I think also um, integration and melding in these things is a, is a, is a two-way street. And I, I guess growing up in, in Canada, mostly it, it, that felt fairly easy. I, I guess things may change over time and in different places you have different 
um, situations. But in, in the UK, this is often something that's talked about in integration, and those migrants must integrate, and they must and, and do this. And, and I, I think for, for me, I, I, I see that as a, as a two-way street, that it's, it's both the hosts and, and the new mm-hmm. migrants to try to do. But of course, it, it more falls onto the, the new migrants, I suppose. Um, but I, I guess one of the things, and, and why we started Migrant Voice um, five years ago, was, was that we, we, there was lots, and there continues to be a lot of media and information and politicians saying things about migrants, um, there's not so much about the migrant voice and about the migrants speaking for themselves. And And I was uh, lucky to be good friends with a woman named Nazik Ramadan and Anne Stoltenberg, and, and they had both done similar jobs to me, working with migrants for a long time, being migrants themselves in the UK. Um, and we sort of thought it's, it's difficult when organizations are speaking for us. Um, and we need to say and do more of these things ourselves, but also to help others who might be less confident or whatever, but or have a more relevant recent story. Because of course, that's what the media and and people are interested in. When this last period of uh, of the issues around Syrians and things, of course, we get many requests from the media to speak to a Syrian because they want someone who's had that experience, and especially a Syrian who may have come via the Mediterranean or or via Hungary or or something. Um, and we have to respond to that, and it's one of the main um, things that the charity does is to broker some of those contacts um, with the media and between and migrants. But also, we would support the migrants so that they're comfortable to tell their story, so they know what they um, that they also have a power in that interview relationship. That if they're not comfortable with certain things being asked or said, that they can say that that we we can support them if if they need that. But also, it's just understanding and building up those skills. So we do a variety of different things to help them do that. But I think for us, that's in in reality there there is not there's very few um, refugees and asylum seekers in the UK. The numbers are tiny. Um, uh, 20,000 per year in a, in a population of 60 million. Um, and so actually, in reality, most people will never meet a refugee or an asylum seeker. But there is a lot of media and, yes. and political Hysteria. rhetoric yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and for me, in, in some of my studies, looking at public attitudes and, and having worked in this area for a long time, creating and, and brokering some kind of meaningful contact often breaks down those ideas that that might be people might have hear it in the media they might have it reinforced by a politician saying something um, politicizing um, migrant or, or refugee issues to a degree and, and people might start to believe some of those things why wouldn't they if the media and and your leaders are saying certain things but I think when they see someone telling their story it's it's a lot it's a lot more difficult to to negate that experience and it causes them to question things that they might have thought um and uh, alongside those types of of media activities we also support people to write their own stories we have our own Mm -hmm. newspaper we have um, now with with social media and things it's much easier to do blogs and twitter and and these kinds of things which promote it a little bit but the main thing is people being involved in in television and radio and newspaper uh, interviews themselves, and we, we believe that helps to um, to sway attitudes to to some degree, um, given a barrage of lots of other right. things happening. I mean, you know, 
you know, not every immigrant is going to be all rosy. There's always going to be a criminal, in, you know, a component because, you know, there's criminals in every nationality in the world. I mean, but, you know, it's rather like the CNN over here. You know, the, the media likes to sensationalize that and blow that out of proportion. And as you said, you know, like it's a 1% in, in the 100. And, and it's... Um, and that's all people focus in on. Um, I, you're my fourth or fifth interview on migration. And, and the interesting thing I find here is that everybody that's stepping up to help migrants find a voice, find a place, you know, uh, contribute, settle in, um, either get a job or form their own business. Every single one of these people are migrants themselves. And it's not being the actual, you know, um, residents of the UK, because all of these actually have been in the UK that have stepped forward in doing that. It's the migrants saying, we know what we need. And so we're going to step up and actually create that need and create that support and help migrants settle in because we've been there, you know, we've done that and we know what's missing. Um, have you found, I mean, kind of was what you said, you saw what was needed and you're a migrant too. Um, is that the reason why you formed this? Because you just saw that it wasn't being done. Well, to to a large extent, I guess I, I, I might argue with you a little bit. I think there's there's a lot of, of uh, British people, Canadians, wherever you may be, who are doing a lot of stuff. Um, and and certainly we've seen that more recently in the UK around the refugee welcome movement and things. And, and there is actually a genuine movement that's developing that is most British people, um, but it's uh, those. Some of those things have been a little bit hidden, or they've been. Um, they just don't get much attention because those aren't uh, positive news. Isn't always yeah. the news that gets reported. And yeah. and as you've said, where there's a story of a negative migrant, well, that gets that gets overplayed to the nth degree. Um, and so I think we we just thought we need to um, to try to counter that, but also to support people to, to say their own stories. The other thing is migrants, we're not an entity. We're not one homogeneous unit. There's many different types of migrants, but mm -hmm. myself as a, as a, as a Canadian, well, I'm, I'm from the West. I identify with, from, with the West a little bit more than I do the East. Um, there's, I have a certain type of background. We're all different. And I think in, in the migrant, we were very conscious that when we set up that we wanted to represent all migrants. We thought there was some commonality between refugees and economic migrants um, and that there was some element of solidarity in, in trying to do things together. And, and we were very clear that we wanted to be migrant-led and we wanted it to be um, migrants speaking for ourselves. But the other side was that we felt that all migrants had a story that was useful to share. Um, some will be of more interest to uh, to people or to uh, to media, but that that shouldn't be uh, negated, and that we should try to encourage that. Because one part of encouraging is that is that people see something that they have in common with the person you, you, that we. I think sometimes when when uh, certain cases are represented, or whether it's a negative or a positive, then general public doesn't necessarily identify um, yeah. and uh, for us we think what's interesting and and why we, we we're doing what we we do is that um, people have uh, something to share and, and not every of course not everyone wants to share their story and and I think if you went to most British public and said well you have an interesting story you should share it they would say well they would tell you where to go and probably how to get there. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and give me the ticket. Um, yeah, and, uh, um, but but when they <clears> see there's something that that uh, might help someone else, I think most people want to do that. And that's that's whether you're a migrant or or British. I think 
um, you've been introduced to me, I suppose, because of the other people that you uh, you've interviewed. But it's it, to me, it's quite in, incredible. Um, in the last um, month or so, just with the the migrant and refugee crisis, as as it's been termed, how the British public have responded um, in quite uh, quite a strong way. Because for years, it's been something that has been very politicized. The government has been very clear that they want to get the numbers down and they'll do whatever it takes to get those numbers down. And we see how that hurts real people and real families. Um, and suddenly, um, when this actually develops into, into a crisis, people have responded. And I, I think we now have a survey this week that came up out or last week that came out that said a third of Brits have done something for Syrian refugees. They've either donated money or clothes or marched or signed something or demonstrated. Or, and two million um, families have signed up to have a refugee in their home. Um, that's incredible to me, having worked in this area for 15 years. But I think it's partly because um, Germany and other places said we can do and should do more. And I think Brits realized, well, actually, for years we've been told we can't do anything. It's too big. It's too hard. But Germany's doing something. Well, if they can do it, we can do it. Yeah. I think, like with Canadians, I think Brits have a very strong sense of their society being fair. For me, one of the frustrations, both in the UK and what I see happening increasingly in Canada, is I know it's not fair for certain groups of people. I know it's very difficult. People don't really want to believe how difficult it might be. And it's one thing for Jason to say something who works with refugees because they'll think, oh, well, of course he says that because he's a bit biased. I think now people are actually starting to believe some of these things were not quite right and, and, and are actually challenging it by doing things, which, which to me is quite amazing and, and, and demonstrates that people do care and do want to do something. I think, Ken, one of the benefits, um, is, you know, the people that are stepping up are most likely the people that have, you know, been living al um, alongside migrants that have been there for a while and realize they're not a threat. They're not here to take over the country. It's not the Vikings coming to raid. Uh, they're just people wanting to have a good life. And uh, so it's it's less threatening. You know, it's... Um, uh, and also you've got that second generation. You know, for the first generation, it's hard for them to change. You know, they're very steeped in their culture. They bring their culture with them. But when they have their offspring, um, they're now immersed in the culture that they're born into or that they're, they've come to and they go to school. And, and um, they, you know, there's quite a, a difference there. There's emergence there. And I think that it just kind of shows people in the, you know, in, in the areas that, you know, they're just people wanting a good job, wanting a, a good life for their own families, wanting to contribute. It's not such a big threat. Let's reach out and help one another. And you probably find a lot of, you know, migrant people are the ones also reaching out and helping as well. Yeah, I think I think there's an element <coughs> of that. But, but, but you have to remember, I think, that the UK is quite a bit different in some ways than Canada. Well, well the UK has this long Commonwealth history. Technically, the only 13% of the population is 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 foreign born, um, whereas in Canada it's it's, it's much higher. Um, so people do have a much more uh, personal experience, I think, in Canada, um, and uh, and that I think I think it's for me it's always been interesting in all of the discussion, debate, or or media around um, migration and immigration in the UK, you you almost never hear anything about emigration. And growing up in BC, going to Vancouver Island and in certain cities, you would always meet people like yourself, Sarah, who were British. You'd, they've got mm -hmm. a bit of an accent or something there, or Scottish, or um, especially Scots. I lived in Glasgow for, for six years, and any time I got into a taxi, I met anyone if they 
there weren't a lot of Canadians around, um, so my accent and my accent's not so strong, I suppose, anymore. They usually thought I was Irish or something else, mm-hmm. and, or, or, or worse, the worst thing they could say, guess, was that I was American. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but that happened. And uh, but when I said I was Canadian, they always had a relative, and that was just mm. from the seventies and eighties that had gone over. Yes. Um, and uh, but I think what's very interesting for me in the in this UK context that while thirteen percent. Um, are foreign-born, almost 10% of the British population, almost 6 million people, are immigrants living somewhere else. Um, and that's never really talked about here. Uh, of course, there is issues around language, and, and there's been lots of discussion recently around using the, ter- the terminologies of migrants, refugees, but also when you're, you're a certain type of migrant, you might be called an expat, and, mm-hmm. and alongside that is, is some different kind of connotations. And when people ask me what I do for work, if you're Canadian or whatever, what you do for work, I work with refugees, I work with migrants, and then they might say something, often you might hear something negative um, or something they've heard about, um, why are you doing that? Those people do this. Or, and yeah. I just, just just a minute, I'm one of those people. Yes. yes I'm, I'm, I'm not a refugee, but I'm a migrant. And, and then I think it causes them to think a little bit because they have an idea in their head that a migrant isn't someone like me. Mm-hmm. Um, Interestingly, I think in the UK and, and why there is a bit more, certainly why there's more discussion and, and uh, more challenges is, is also with Eastern and Central Europe exceeding into into the EU. Um, there's been a lot more free movement and a lot more Eastern and Central Europeans have come to the UK um, to work and there's jobs for them. The majority of them are in jobs. They're young, upwardly mobile people, usually working below their skill level, at least in the, in the first couple of years. Um, but there's a lot more of them. A lot of Polish people and, and Eastern and Central Europeans have come. And for me, that, that discourse is also a little bit interesting because you, you say you work with, with migrants and people might say, oh, the Polish, oh, there's maybe too many of them. They're, they're taking jobs. They're lowering wages, potentially. And you'd say, well, uh, are they really doing that? But usually the other thing that they would say is, but they're hard workers. Exactly. Because actually most of the people have met a Polish person, whereas most people never met an asylum seeker or a refugee. And, and outside the big cities, you wouldn't meet any many migrants from uh, from Africa or Asia, even though in, certainly in London the, the proportion of, of Commonwealth um, people is very high. Um, but uh, I, I always get a bit frustrated when... Um, when people again there's a sort of stereotype but at least in the Polish instance it was sort of it went a little bit the other way in that there was something positive but it was also because of uh, because there were enough people had come that and because they were throughout the UK people had met them and knew about a bit about them and or there was a bit of experience from uh, from after the war during the war when the Polish were here Um, so in most cities there is a Polish Catholic Church that's been established for a long time and so there are Polish delis and things like this that were here before the the latest um, accession of, of, of people coming. I mean, you know, um, <clears throat> a lot of the people I have interviewed over in the UK um, are, you know, coming from places like Kenya and uh, um, Iran and um, and Libya and uh, um you know, quite a number of countries where they've left because of, you know, some issue going on there at the time. And, uh, you know, but what they've actually contributed to their new country, in which they love absolutely emphatically, um, you know, has been something to help other migrants, but not just other migrants, just kind of that merging of that integration and kind of showing a face is that, you know, um, 
you know, people kind of will paint all Africans the same, you know, all Muslims the same, all East Indians the same, and, and realize that they are people. Yes, they've got traditions, they've got cultures, they bring that with them. Um, but that, uh, you know, that <laughs> comes down to it. Everybody has the same need. Um, everybody well. has desires. And that if you bother to kind of have a conversation with them, you will see actually how much they're actually bringing to your country and how much they're contributing and uh, how we, you know, collaborate and um, and help one another. And if they are taking jobs, it's maybe because some people have been sitting on their hands for a while uh, thinking it's easy and uh, maybe it, it just ups everybody else's game a little bit to be a little bit better at their own job so they can keep it <laughs> yeah well, i don't think that's I, I don't think that's such an issue but certainly that that's something that we and in, in times of austerity and and things which have been uh, experienced in the uk the last five or six years there is also um a temptation to blame other people for, for problems um, and I think the the majority of uh, of migrants and basically uh, that I know, but also just in all the studies that show uh, that have been done, have have shown that they are contributing much more than than they might um, take. That there is actually reluctance to to go into social welfare and and uh, things like this on the part of of most migrants. But there's a general belief that that they're they're involved in more of those things, which is just isn't borne out. But but it is, we also have, in the UK, it is quite problematic and challenging that you, one, as I said before, that you, until quite recently, outside of London or the bigger cities, people wouldn't generally meet migrants very much because there mm-hmm. just aren't that many. But also we have a very strong tabloid press, and it's oh, a very politicized yes. press in yeah. the UK. Um, and and even we're, we're in the middle of our conference, party conference seasons now, and, and, and it was quite disturbing um, what the home home secretary said yesterday and the blame that she put to a certain degree on on migrants when it, it, her own home office studies show that's not true um and even some of the right wing press went after her papers she wouldn't expect um saying this is those are untrue untruths that you've shared um which was quite a shock um so it's interesting but also as the UK has, for the last five years, the government has, has just pushed that, oh, we must get numbers down, we must reduce numbers to tens of thousands, even though all the, the majority of economists and studies show because of the aging population and other things that are happening, we need we need the actual the number of, of surplus migrants coming to the UK or the number of people coming over the number of people who have left has been around about two, 250 to 300,000 a year, despite the government trying to get it down below 100,000. Um, but actually, economists and, and demographers would say, well, you actually need those people because the baby boom population is about to leave the economy. Yes. Um, and if you don't have people to replace them, and there's not enough young people, even with those who are unemployed, who might be skilled up in the right skills, there won't be enough people to, to address that gap. And countries like the UK, especially, and I think will, will be challenged, because uh, partly the media and political rhetoric making it unattractive, but also the laws. It it is one of the the toughest countries now, um, despite people believing it's not. I know because of people I meet every day, Mm -hmm. um, and even for myself. um, I'm lucky because of a British grandparent, but there's there's certain things that will apply um, to other Canadians and make it very difficult um, to, to stay, even if you are contributing, or the income thresholds that you might need even if you marry, a, if a Brit marries a, a foreigner, they have to have quite a high income to be able to to bring their spouse here. 
some of those things are becoming harsher and, and migrants will choose other places. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and the thing is, is we've got to look at it is, is uh, you know, because somebody's left the country for whatever reason, um, you know, recently um, interviewed uh, Rafael Dos Santos, who started off uh, an in immigrant entrepreneurial business where they actually invest in the immigrant to set up their own business because yeah, they were uh, very, very skilled in their own country. And, mm-hmm. th- and then they've come to this country and, and maybe some of those skills aren't kind of. Um, I- exactly the same. They can't apply it here, but they've still got these skills, and mm-hmm. they can set up their own businesses. And uh, you know, they help them help them do that. And you've got a lot of the times where you know things they did over there they can't do in the new country. Maybe it's because of their language, or maybe because there's you know like accountancy. There's a whole new law you've got to have medical. They have to go through the whole process again because it's different language and in different terminology. And very often. You see such highly skilled people having to go through totally, you know, to a totally different uh, new career because it's not a transferable mm-hmm. skill. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know Raphael, and he's a member of Migrant Voice, and he's. Um, it, it's he brings a uh, quite interesting discussions as well because he's very much. I can do this. We can do this. Everyone can do this. And 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 you have certain people from uh, that have been through trauma, been through other things, or. I know many asylum seekers, many people who are waiting up to 10 years or more um, to get their decision, decide to get a decision, um, and, and weren't allowed to work in that period. So they become completely de-skilled, um, and they do end up working in, in the supermarket or mm-hmm. doing care work or other things, and then you find out, well, actually, they are a qualified doctor or engineer or something else, and, and the UK has, has struggled to help to re-qualify those people despite all of these these issues in discussion, a third of the NHS, a third of the National Health Service is foreign-born. 26% of the doctors in the UK are, are migrants. Yes. Um, and uh, these things are, from time to time, um, shared in the media. We will always encourage and, and push those. But, but these statistics and myth-busting kinds of things aren't, aren't enough. You, you need to have also real personal contact um, and and as I said I think some of that is, is changing a bit now as as the migrant lived migrant experience goes outside of the cities and, and more and people people realize but at the same time you have such a strong um, a strong rhetoric around numbers and control um, I think this was as I said interesting in, in, in the last month because um, the UK had two years ago actually accepted, um, to take 500 um, uh, refugees from, from Syria, actually from pressure from a, a far-right party, the UKIP party, saying, you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, campaigners and, and organizations and people like myself had for a couple of years said that more needs to be done. This is ridiculous. Only the people who manage to get here by themselves have even a chance. And then even those who get here on their own steam, despite the struggle across the Mediterranean or however they've come over land, um, they they can also face a, a, a deportation order and not not getting through. But despite that happening two years ago, up to this year, there's still only 200 of those 500 were expected. And then suddenly there's this big crisis yeah. of more people coming, and and the UK was was sort of again shamed into doing more. But the numbers are are actually relatively small, and it's 20,000 people over five years. Well, that's 4,000 people. Um, a year. Uh, Germany right now is accepting 10,000 a day. Um, it's just... But you know what, what I don't understand story. about this is that they're in a crisis right now. They're mm-hmm. displaced right now. You're talking about taking you know, 20,000 over the next five years. Where did they go in the meantime? 
what happens yeah. to them in the meantime? You know. Yeah. No. Well, we know that we know the majority. We know four million people are living in neighboring countries, um, and Germany has taken uh, um, a lot, or is this year taking a lot more people. Um, how long that lasts? It, it also puts pressure then on onto other countries to try to support uh, um, some sort of solution in Syria. Um, what that solution will be is is probably uh, not a happy situation for uh, for anyone, and and will be very difficult. But the I think for the Syrians this year, after for many of them living outside of their country for four years um, since the conflict began, um, while many live in camps in in Turkey and and uh, Lebanon and Jordan, the majority don't. The majority just live in quite desperate situations in the cities and, and places with, with friends or family, but often not able to work and not enough money. How long can anyone live for that like that? Yes. Um, so, and uh, I think there's a, there's a beautiful poem, I'll, I'll try to send it to you or whatever, that I would never, and it has a line in it, that I, no parent would put their ch- child in a boat unless it's safer than the land, mm. um, or sort of thing. And I, I think we've seen that demonstrated Unfortunately, horrifically, yes. um, in, in many situations, and and the, and the challenge and the and the difficulty and the, and the discouragement for many of us is, we know how many thousands of people have died in the med this year and and in the last uh, ten or fifteen years, and and that the solution seems to be more security and keeping them in Africa or keeping them further away. Well, in those countries, the situation is quite desperate, and people are being kidnapped and held hostage and, and killed. Yes. Um, and and we, is this the kind of world we want to live in? Um, I don't think for the majority of people it is, but as long as we can keep that situation something that we don't personalize or, or understand a bit more, then it's quite easy to say those people and yes. that's over there. I think what's been changing to, to some degree, and I hope continues, is that people are starting to realize, well, no, there is something we can do, and, and those people could be us and and in many in, in meeting people and seeing people's stories and things they realize well no I have more in common with that person than difference exactly and if you look to it you know you will see it I mean I know many many immigrants here because of course I am one and no they're not all British they're from all different cultures and you know especially those you know here we we've had a lot of um, you know Kurdish people and one has to understand is that they've seen some horrific things over there um, many of them have had to escape for their lives and leave family behind that they will never see again. And there's a huge psychological struggle that they have. And it's not just a question of providing, you know, housing and food or, and helping them, you know, set up with a new career and a new thing. There's a lot of uh, issues that they have to go through of, you know, of pain, of letting go, of anguish. And there's a lot of support that they need in doing this. It's not just adapting to a new life. It's understanding what they've left behind or what they've gone through, you know, mm. before they've gone yeah, and Yeah, no, no and, and, and also a lot of guilt, I think, because they're, they're mm. safe and that they know and love aren't. Um, and that, that's, I, I suppose, for me, I, and probably one of the reasons I've, I've stayed involved is, is, um, is some of the, uh, the women that I met as a, as a student in university, but also in, in, in Malawi and in Sri Lanka, who the extra things that they had to do to keep family going and, and, and the courage and strength that they showed. But, but in the UK, I remember one of the hardest things when I first started working with asylum seekers and refugees was women waiting for years to get a decision, not being able to work, looking after their kids, struggling, not being able to provide the extra things for their, their children, um, that, that children are children, whoever you may be. Yes. Um, 
you can't afford the Nikes, you can't afford those things, and suddenly getting there, um, and many of them being on antidepressants and things, trying to cope and manage, and then you get your refugee decision, but then that also, well, it's still difficult. Um, it's hard to find a decent job. There are elements, as in Canada, of, of racism and, and mm-hmm. prejudice yes. that, that make it even more difficult, and then you end up, um, and many of the women I know ended up on, on depression, antidepressants again, um, and if they didn't have the support of migrant organizations or, or refugee support organizations or um, things like churches and, and uh, groups that integration networks and things, that's what's helped them keep them going. And I think that's also been challenging in, in this period because um, of austerity and things. There's been so many cuts to to any of those ex- those things that are seen as extra programs. Um, and so it, it pushes a lot more support onto people themselves to try to do to do more. Um, and but I, th- I think we all have to to try. I mean, you know, I think worldwide we're looking at um, don't rely on your government. Um, if there's a shortcut, if there's a cutback, if there's a way of eliminating, they will. And I mean, you know, it, it is really as as, as you know the general population we have to step up i mean i'm very much a believer in the village and the village is only as strong as the participants and everybody working collaboratively together and you you know look to your community if you don't want crime in your community if you want your community to flourish if you want people to get on be a part of the solution you know mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you have to like everybody or bosom buddies with everyone but there is that mutual respect um, you know there are th- th- those boundaries that everybody respects, but just you know that um, that kindness, that consideration towards one another, helping people out when they need it, stepping up and not going those people and segregating, mm-hmm. but going, you know those people are in trouble. What can I do to help? Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. you know it's the same as you know I've just done a wonderful show on the homeless and you know the people that walk by. And uh, and oh, it must be their fault, you know. There must be failures, must be losers. Nobody knows their story of what ended up putting them on the street, and you'd be surprised at the things that took them there. And if you hear their story, you perhaps have a lot more compassion and understanding, and reach out. So I think that reaching out and get to know someone's story, even if the language barrier is there, you know, um, finding a way to bridge it and care will take away a great deal of that fear and a lot of that stigma and you'll see community helping one another so much more and not having to put so much reliance on waiting for the government to step up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, and I think also on that, for, for most migrants, they come from places where that doesn't happen and I don't think they expect that necessarily here when, um, when they go to somewhere else, um, which I, I, I find quite interesting sometimes when you talk to people and they, they say, oh, they're taking this and they want their after this and it's like no, the majority of people they they didn't even have any idea that there was a social safety net or a social welfare state when they chose to come to the UK. They chose to come to the UK because they spoke a bit of English. They see BBC. They're from a Commonwealth country, so they think this is a fair place, and and it is often a fair place, but it, it's often a not. Um, and and there's lots of people who can fall through the cracks. Um, and I think I still I, I guess I haven't lived in Canada properly for over 20 years and, and I still I suppose romanticize it but it was and maybe it was because I was from the west and from smaller cities or whatever we we did say hello in the street you did know your neighbors you did um, do lots of different kinds of things there is a sense of in, in some parts of the UK in particular of, of reserve and, and people mm-hmm. are, are, are not as 
as outward facing as as I think in Canada. I suppose until quite recently there was. I remember growing up, you never really heard anything negative about immigrants because we were all immigrants. Right. Um, and um, and it was a, at a politician's peril to, to say something. I think that's that's changed a little bit. Um, yeah, we've seen that with uh, we've seen that with the Dom. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, which is which is sad and unfortunate. And I, I made sure though to to um, to time my next visit home so that I'll be there for the election and, and hopefully see some change. Um, but. But it's those differences, um, subtle differences between Canada and the UK, um, I suppose, are, are, are challenging and, and problematic. Um, and, and also just, I guess, um, in Canada, I, for lots of different reasons, political and, and the way the, the country um, was set up in the way the country uh, to, to keep together, uh, bilingualism and multiculturalism are, are still pretty important are, are now policy. Multiculturalism is not talked about in the UK. It's not seen as a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is a challenge. Um, so I, I meet many second generation migrants when I came here from Sri Lanka. I still could speak Tamil and Sinhalese fairly good. It's sort of gone now. But I chose to live in Manchester in the Curry Mile because I liked the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would occasionally hear someone speaking Tamil or, or Sinhalese and I would ask them uh, in Tamil or Sinhalese, um, where they were from or um, something like this and, and if they understood me because um, it's not that common for a white guy to speak in right. languages <laughs> uh, if they understood me they would write usually the response was immediate no I'm British no I'm British and I said oh, okay but your your parents whereas in Canada we're quite happy to say I'm Sri Lankan Canadian or a Chinese yes. Canadian even I might say I'm, I'm German Canadian or something you don't have that very much in the UK so that that's also a bit of a challenge and, and some some migrants you meet are more British than the British, um, <laughs> which is which is interesting, um, and it's not a bad thing, but is interesting. I mean, you you know you're not, you're from here, and I came over here in 1980, and of course this uh, around the 80s was a complete exodus from China. Everybody mm. getting out because you know the communism, people leaving Hong Kong for the fear of the com, you know it becoming communistic, and uh, you know you had an onslaught. Um, of Chinese people and uh, you know there was a lot of resentment if you remember because uh, they came in droves they bought everything up and mm-hmm. uh, and pr- drove the prices up so for mm-hmm. regular people it was hard to buy a home because suddenly the market was in demand and uh, you know people couldn't afford it and then after that of course we had the Koreans and uh, and they literally buy up shopping malls and things like that and I think that if you are going to be an, an immigrant it's like come to the country contribute be a part of it but it's also be mindful that if you are going to come in on slot and start buying everything up it is going to put a few backs up and you know maybe kind of reach out to the people and saying yes we're going to do this but we still want to work together and do things it is a two-way street isn't it yeah i suppose i, I would i would challenge a little bit the, the language <laughs> there because this is an issue we we often face language around onslaught and droves i i don't know actually how many koreans came to to BC, but I, I know they're very visible because they bought shops, and so they're seen um, uh, because of the the businesses that they may be involved in. But uh, but I also remember that the Chinese coming, um, that Canada made it very attractive for people and, and had lower thresholds of, of um, investment 
to to draw people to Canada that was different than the U.S. and, and even the U.K. Um, but also, it, it, while there was the the recession in the in the eighties that hit most of Canada quite badly, yeah. it, did, it didn't hit Vancouver quite as badly because there was money being invested, and mm-hmm. and I think that that issue was also it wasn't it, it, yes people chose to come. And and they also chose to come because Vancouver had a, a Chinese heritage, and it was a bit easier in some ways. But also the politicians, they designed that program to be like that. They wanted the numbers, they wanted the money, yes. but then they weren't they weren't so keen to to defend and and to to support and say, well, what the benefit has been for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there there are leaders. They should also manage that to a degree, I suppose, and support that rather than because what's happened and I, to a degree is. Is 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 blame and um, and you in the, I know in the Fraser Valley um, there's a lot more. I think my last summer job and when I was in, still in Saskatchewan would be to come back and pick berries and things because my friends were were in the valley and and there's a lot more um, Eastern Indian um, families bought up farms and things as well. But but that has helped the economy. Yeah. Um, and and we sort of forget some of that, but also we forget that a generation ago that was our families coming from Germany or Poland or the UK, um, and that somehow was okay. Um, that other people should choose to do this is less okay. I, I think we need to look a little bit closer at ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, um, and I think also, guys, as I said, when you get the second generation, um, you know, because a, a, a lot of the time, especially people, if there's a language barrier, barrier they kind of stick with with their own rather than kind of merging. And but then you then they have children, and those children are multicultural, and uh, I think that kind of then bridges the gap. And of course, what we're seeing a great deal now, you know, for those that came in the 80s, it's you know now the 2000s they're having children of their own, and um, you know we're we're seeing a, a, a lot more merging of all of those cultures as being normal now. Um, because it is more of a blend, you know, more of a blend of the cultures, so it's been more acceptable. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it's also, but it was also, I, I think, I, I think probably to be frank too, there was there were issues of racism. These people didn't look the same as yes. we did, um, and 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 we we like to think that we are, um, again, we're that that we're fair and that we're proper and we're not prejudiced, but of course we are, um, and and this was, I think, uh, something that again was the elephant in the room that wasn't really talked about unless you were from a migrant background and you realized that this was how your lived experience was, but that that wasn't being um, sort of necessarily recognized. So then that also pushes people to stick together. Um, and that that's that's something that, that I think hopefully Canada is getting better at, but at the same time there are issues of, of politicization. Yeah, of, of the politicians well. and everything didn't kind of prepare people to welcome yeah. You know, and that no, was the have, thing. Yeah. You know, there no, wasn't and, that and social of welcoming them to the country. It's all of a sudden they're there and the prices are going yeah. up. So that resentment it's, was there. Yeah, it's not just welcome. It's also explaining what is the situation. Yeah. We have this similar issue in the UK. And, and I think why there is a bit of a legacy here of of, of negativity is is in, in 19, um, 1997, the UK t- changed their policy around where asylum seekers were then dispersed to different parts of the country. Up to that point, people could live where they wanted while their claim was being heard, and the government would support them if they weren't working. They also were allowed to work until 2000. After 2000, they were dispersed to different parts of the country, usually where rents were cheaper, often in white working-class neighborhoods that didn't have much experience of of people from different backgrounds, but also they weren't allowed to work. And often the cases took a long time to be decided. So people in those neighborhoods would see people who... um, 
who weren't doing anything, who were there for a long time, who were in, seemed to be living for free. And so there was resentment yes. and, and, and there was very little um, work done by the government to explain who were these people, why were they there, what, was, what were the, num the numbers actually were, that the numbers actually were relatively small. And I think what was interesting was in, in cities like Glasgow, where actually the, the, the Scottish government decided rather than dispersing people to different cities in Scotland, they would take them all into Glasgow, but they also would take families and they had housing to, to manage that. But it was a conscious choice on, on some level because also they, they Scotland Scottish population had been going down for years and they thought, well, if people, if people come as families, then they're less likely to want to migrate back to London once a decision is taken. Um, and, and also put in other support measures and things to, to help them and to make them feel welcome. So when I, I went to Glasgow some years ago, I thought, oh, it's, um, it's great. We've heard good things about Glasgow. They've stopped on raids. They've stopped families being taken in the night. They've, they've provided extra support. They're helping asylum seekers to go to university and, and uh, preschoolers to be able to go to preschool without having to pay uh, or getting free places as was happening in the UK. And, and I thought that was because organizations worked well together. And, and I got there and quickly realized, no, it wasn't. It was because people, um, neighbors were sticking up for neighbors and pressuring the, the newspapers to not do those negative stories because that wasn't their experience of the people they live next to. And how dare someone try to take children in the night in a, yeah. in a van um, and were blockading it as families themselves. But it was also because, as you, you said earlier, they were living together. They had kids in school Community. together, yeah. living in the same. Um, and that's one of the things that's been challenging for, for other uh, refugee groups and other because the majority of people come are, are generally young men because that's you often who's most threatened or that's who the family sends away. Um, to let them try to, to establish, um, but also they're a bit more, more hidden and, um, and less visible, I suppose, in the community. And, and people can identify with kids. They, they identify less probably with, with singles, and, yeah. and you have a community is built up because you, your kids go to school and things. Now, um, when I came here in 1980, I actually only came here for a visit, and I, I met my ex-husband while I was here. And uh, so, you know, we decided he was going to sponsor me into staying here. And uh, I remember going, you know, up to, you know, the the procedure. And I talked to a, a British gentleman who had lived in South Africa, who now was here in Canada. And we were getting on like a house on fire. And I, he said, who is sponsoring you? And I said, my boyfriend, he has his own restaurant. He said, that's all fine. Is he here? And I said, yes. He said, can you call him up to the desk? He came up to the desk and he said not another word to me. He stamped my passport and he said, you've got 10 days to get out. My husband, um, who then, then became my husband, is Chinese. Mm. All right. And immediately that, I mean, I, I was blown away. No explanation, mm. nothing. Next, mm -hmm. go. And, it, mm -hmm. and of course, you know, we had uh, three children mixed and, uh, you, you know, it's, yeah, you know, we kind of got that racism and that... Uh, you know, that judgment there, and I'd hear people talking about Chinese, and then when they finish the conversation, point at my children were half Chinese, and then hear them splutter mm -hmm. afterwards. But uh, it did, it did kind of, it was a, 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 a quite, a, quite a shock to me, that response. Um, mm. and, uh, and I couldn't understand it why, you know, but anyway, mm -hmm. it is, mm -hmm. um, he obviously had his reasons, and he had a knee-jerk reaction, but I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of a point, isn't it, is don't have the knee-jerk reaction. You know, don't assume, ask, uh, learn before you pass that judgment. Mm -hmm. No, and, and also it, it's. It, we would hope that we we have some sort of recourse to challenge those things, but increasingly that's quite problematic for people who don't have 
um, residents or citizenship rights. Um, it's hard enough for for others as things are cut, but but this is also one of the things that where these things happen, and it's also people. Many people would be tempted to just be quiet and not say anything because, well, it's going to damage my chances when I try again. And mm-hmm. I think I think for I think we do have to speak about injustice wherever we are and whatever it may be. Um, and 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 this is also something that I suppose in in. Um, working with migrant voice that we've seen that actually it, it helps to 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 do things together where there's common experience. But um, I think probably a quarter of our members are are Scot are British, um, and and they all almost all of our training on on media and interviewing skills and all that thing that's done for free by journalists who give their time because they they understand why it's important to say and do more, but they also can can help us in in how we we do things and. Um, and I think that's that's quite important. But also, what's what's interesting is is when you share some of these stories in, in public forum or whatever. If people just read it or someone was speaking on behalf of the person, they might not believe it. But when the person speaks and tells their story themselves, it's it's very difficult to to not believe or try exactly. uh, try to empathize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you know kind of one of the reasons I do the station is to bring these stories about you know and open up the minds and the hearts of people and realize that you know everybody's just looking for a meaningful purpose in life you know security and a way of bringing up their family and and just uh you know living truly and honestly Mm. living and uh you know if some people have been displaced because it wasn't anything to do with them they had to be on the run and some people have chosen to go and seek a new avenue some people are just purely adventurous Mm-hmm. and just want to go and experience new cultures and you know for whatever reason is is that stop looking at people as different and and look and meet and greet to find out what's the same you know what mm-hmm. do you have in common mm-hmm. yeah no no for sure so it doesn't really matter where you are in the world i mean you know as you said we're seeing migration everywhere in the world i mean there isn't a country that isn't uh, being hit and uh, I kind of really like the, the moral of the story here is is that you know don't judge a person by their you know authenticity talk to the authenticity you know mm-hmm. get to know them and, yeah. and find out yeah. who they are and, and how you can build that community around each other how you could support one another and you know take that prejudice away from it don't buy mm-hmm. into the media either <laughs> yeah well, well there's, there's, there's so many there's very uh, often there's quite good media on, on certain issues and on certain things and, and that we um, from Migrant Voice we use that media to, to to help get people's voices out and I suppose last year we were surprised well a little bit maybe not that surprised but, but we did a, a, ourselves we did a media um, monitoring for, for three months just to follow the main newspapers and main um, broadcast television um, things, uh, programs around um, around news, and and that only thirteen percent of the stories about migration included a mi- including a migrant voice, um, which we found a bit strange because if you looked at any other group in society, if you write, re- you report a story about gays and lesbians or about mm-hmm. Africans or about um, other groups, you would see um, that they would. Most of it, or half of the stories at least, would include trying to speak to someone about that experience. But in migrants, it, it wasn't there. And part of it, I suppose, was that we we need to be um, more visible and and be willing to do more of these things. But often people weren't asked, and it and and we still I still get frustrated as as the chair of a of a charity when you see these uh, you see many panels and things where it's um, uh, about migration, and you're like, okay, but 
why is there five people on that panel and, and there's no migrants? You wouldn't have five men on a panel. Um, you, would have, you would always try to include a woman or five women. You didn't try to include a man. But if you're speaking about migration, why wouldn't you have a migrant on there? Especially when you've got that lived experience and um, no migrant can represent every, every other migrant, but you would still try to, to be a bit more inclusive. And that's, that's often a challenge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Getting the right voices up there, and uh, you know, you know, all we do is just just keep plying at it, and then keep educating people, keep sharing those stories, and then people begin to realize. So, it's just keep at it. So, would you tell people, you know, what the Migrant Voice actually, you know, does, and a little synopsis here: how people can find you, how they can contribute, how they can support it. Um, well, we, we set up five years ago, and, and as I, it, I guess the clue's in the name, it's Migrant Voice. It's to try to promote um, migrants so that we, we speak for ourselves and that we learn how to do that more effectively. Um, we're working in three cities in the UK, in, in Birmingham, Glasgow, and, and London. We have a small team, just a, a couple of, of staff members who've, uh, who've been there since the beginning and aboard and a, um, uh, a legion, I don't mind using that word, of volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there's many different activities. So we do a yearly newspaper. Partly that's to um, in the UK you have many of these free newspapers. So we we did one this year just before the election, which talked about all different migrant issues. But most but but was like a normal newspaper. We had a sports pages in the back. We had something interesting, a celebrity or an interesting campaign on the front, so people would be interested in it. And many human interest stories inside, as well as many of the issues that migrants might face. But the majority of the stories were written by migrants or interviews with people, and it also is a little bit of a, a way to get people get migrants. Uh, they're controlling that media to uh, so they can also build their confidence, so that then they might be willing from that to write a blog or or to do a radio interview, and then maybe a newspaper or a television interview, and or for those who aren't interested in that, they're supporting others to do it. So we distribute 100,000 of those papers across those three cities um, before the election and, and in a small way I think that, that may have caused some people to think a little bit differently. Um, we do filming and photography projects, been involved in a number of big campaigns. There was a, I'll, I'll try to send you a link, a, a big campaign before the election that we were involved with in uh, um, with a hundred other organizations to put posters up across the, the, the underground in, in London and the train stations and subways across the UK, uh, this big campaign about I'm an immigrant, and it in, in that told the story of, I think, 14 different immigrants, refugees and migrants from different backgrounds um, doing different things in the UK, um, showing their contribution, mm-hmm. um, and just to cause people to think a bit differently. I, I suppose we, we sometimes struggle a little bit um, for Migrant Voice because we represent all migrants and we don't want a discourse to come out about those are good migrants or those are bad migrants or, or discourses about deserving and undeserving. And so we're always a little bit challenged. But in that the discourse is so negative, we felt that we could support and, and promote something that, that blatantly went the other way. And what was interesting about that campaign, though, was that we, we crowdsourced funded it and we expected and uh, or we hoped that we would raise... 30,000 and that would do a few thousand posters up and down the country and and within a week we'd raised 60,000 and I think it came close to it and that was the public giving yeah um and it it was really and and some of the companies donating billboard spaces and things because they saw this was something important and 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 that they they as organized companies could do something which I think was fantastic um and is is still um talked about but I remember 
some years ago when we started Migrant Voice, we wanted to do that. And we just said, oh, well, but that's, as a board, we said, that's too expensive and too risky. And, and what's the benefit? And then what do we say? And But when we did this collectively with a group of organizations, I think there was almost 100 in this movement against xenophobia that, that we, we're involved with. And that's, that's migrant and British organizations uh, established, long established and new um, just saying, well, we need to do something else and, and working to do that because it's, it's a real challenge here when you have um, politicians and immigration bills that are increasingly harsh. The immigration in the UK has been the most legislated um, uh, element of lawmaking, um, not just under this government, but the previous Labour government, and increasingly harsh. Yet the public believes generally that it's not hard enough. They don't actually know what the reality is for people in in this situation and how controlled our lives are becoming. The UK still is, is the only country in, in, in Europe that de- detains people indefinitely because of immigration status, um, until quite recently detained children. Um, so all of those things are quite problematic and, and people don't necessarily understand and we do have to try to, to get some of those messages out because I think generally most Brits, when they do know, find that out, they think it's an exception or something real. We say, no, this is thousands of people every year who are being detained, and they don't know how long, um, which is, is the worst thing, because how do you how do you support someone in that situation? Yeah, and what are their rights? I mean, who yeah, supports, like, you know, who stands up for them, you know? Yeah, and, and, and increasingly legal aid and support for those uh, people is being cut, and, and there's very little support, and there's horrific cases of people being deported on hunger strike and um, uh, hidden and, and not known about, um, and and fewer and fewer organisations to to campaign and raise these issues, um, and and so I think that's also one of the reasons why we we work with with all migrants is because even amongst the migrants they don't realise that okay for uh, for me I'm very privileged type of migrant I suppose and it's very easy, um, but in that privilege I can also support other people, um, and but also I I guess I could have just lived in a bubble and not not look to some of these things and I think once people realize that what's happening they do want to do something to support and to change exactly and how do you raise your money and how can people support um, well we do this year we also raise, we supported our newspaper by crowdsource funding we get most of the funding we get is through um, charitable foundations um, uh, we don't get any government funding um, and we get a lot of support in kind support from volunteers as I said all of the media training which is thousands of hours a year I suppose is is done by by ju- professional journalists who come and support us we just had a conference um, two weeks ago with 150 almost 200 people probably across the two days um, chaired by some of the best journalists in the UK some of the sessions and um, and real enthusiasm, I suppose, also in, in the times that we're living in. People want to do more and, and know how how and what they can do. Um, so we're always keen um, to have volunteers. We often get um, Canadian and and other uh, North American students who are doing uh, work experience here or doing a, a semester here and who've heard of us and come and volunteer in the office for uh, a few hours a week during their, their placements and um that's that's always interesting, and um, in the UK we have, I suppose, one of the biggest groups of migrants is international students, because technically anyone who stays longer than a year is classified as a migrant. So that's how I first came, and but I, I guess I've stayed on. Mm-hmm. 
exactly you found your calling so you found your voice <laughs> right standing mm -hmm. up for the migrant voice um so yeah, the state I'm is standing up for the migrants i'm standing up for myself and it's, right it's, yes that's your fellow people so mm. so the 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 site is migrantvoice.org mm -hmm. and uh, and how can people get hold of you um yeah they can um uh, they can send us an email there um and they can see the different things that, that we do and activities that we have um, we also have a, a, a Twitter account. That's one of the things I do as a volunteer, and we've got a large number of followers, which is interesting that people want to know more. Um, there's in those three cities. If if they're you're in the UK, there's there's activities happening um, in Birmingham, uh, Glasgow, and London. Um, pretty much, um, well, in London, pretty much every day there's something happening. In in the other cities, it's at least once a week something's going on. Excellent. Well, you know, thank you for standing up and, and seeing there was a need and, and being that voice and, uh, and allowing the migrants to have a voice because, you know, the trouble with fear is ignorance. And, you know, when people know uh, really what is going on and what the issues are, as you said, as a community, they come together and stand with rather than against. So the more education that gets out there, the more invitation that gets out there, you know, the more you diffuse any of that kind of, you know, ignorance out there. So yeah, I think I think it's uh, we've been really lucky as a, we work in, a, in a, a team of people who are very committed. But we set up a charity five years ago in in one of the most difficult times for a charity to set up on on migrant issues, one of the most difficult issues in a time of austerity. Um, and it's we have two amazing. Staff members and and have just been able to employ a, a, another part-time person to help with more communications work and a, and a fantastic board, um, who who all work together, I suppose, to to try to to have some impact and and, and support a stronger migrant voice across the UK. Um, and we work with a lot of other organisations, and there's a lot of people who are trying to do more. And and I, as I said at the beginning, I think it, it's quite hopeful in in this period that there. People have realized they can do more and are, are trying to. Exactly. And, you know, when everybody steps up, you become part of the solution and you stop being part of the problem. So, you know, it doesn't matter how big or small, right? You know, it's just simply contact you and find out in which way they can contribute. Maybe they can't can contribute the time or the money, but maybe there's something else they can do. But yeah, yeah no, and there's, there's a large network of organizations. And if they, it, our, our thing might not be for them, but we can also support them to, to help with others. Um, and uh, and that becomes, I suppose, more important in in challenging times is also um, helping each other to to work more effectively to to get those messages and and support out. Exactly, it's called participation. You know, interaction and participation, and this is actually what finds solutions. So, thank you so much for you know for doing what you're doing because it brings great awareness. You're giving back dignity, and you know, showing humanity, and that's really what everybody wants in life, and uh, and and that's what we should all be striving for. You know treating each other with dignity with respect uh, with love and care and kindness and we'd be a much better world if we all did that so thank you for stepping up to that plate and being um, being that person that helps unite people in that voice um, thank you Sarah and thank you for it's a, it's a really good and interesting show you do I'm glad that you, you do it and we need more of these kinds of um, these kinds of programs so that people can see also what's, what's positive not just what's negative exactly um, Exactly. And, you know, the more we focus on the positive and the solutions, uh, the less negativity is even going to be around. We create the negativity. Uh, so we can put the same amount of energy into the positivity. We'll have a far better results. So...
folks step up wherever you are, whether it be in the UK or the migrants in your own country, wherever you're listening to this. Stop looking at people as being different. Step up and ask how you can help them. And in some way, in whatever way, step out and help because that's part of your community and it's only going to be as enriched as your participation. So till next time, folks, remember it starts off by being kind.